Welcome back to another episode of the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm your host, John Hare. You've found the show that talks about all things horses. Yes, we have been on somewhat a sporadic schedule for the last couple of months. I really appreciate your patience and understanding. I've spent the last four months competing in the Vaquero Heritage Trainers Challenge. I picked up a wild horse of Oak Creek, a horse who had never been handled outside of being gelded at age seven. My job was to teach the horse as much as possible and compete against seven other trainers. The event concluded with a three-day competition in October. Now, I could tell you all about it, but if you've listened to my narrative storytelling skills, you know that might not make for the most captivating podcast. My friend and fellow podcaster, Alyssa Barnes of the Earn Your Spurs podcast, graciously agreed to interview me about the event. We had a wonderful talk about training horses, and I think you'll enjoy our conversation. If you haven't heard Alyssa's podcast, please check out earnyourspurs.com. I think you'll enjoy it. Now, here's Alyssa's interview with me about the Vaquero Heritage Trainers Challenge. Well, I appreciate you coming back on the show today, John, and it's kind of, it's fun. It's always fun to catch up with you, and um, I'm really excited to talk about the topic that we're covering today. Yes, um, you mean my experience uh, training a wild horse. That would be the one, yes. Before we get started, I just want to let everyone know that, you know, if you want to learn more about John and his podcast, the Woe Podcast, uh, you can check out episode 14 because he was one of the first guests on on the Earn Your Spurs podcast back in the teens. Very much so, yes. Early and days. We, and then you and I talk from time to time and we share ideas about podcasting and the horse industry and, and things like that. So I always impre- appreciate your input and creativity on these things. Yes, we are... Uh, we are a small group of horse podcasters, so we have to stick together. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. So, you know, I, I wanted to have you on today because I, I, I really, I appreciate what you did recently and, you know, in, in relation to the training of the wild horse. And I think it's a pretty inspirational story, especially for those who, you know, might be just getting into horses or they just have some apprehension and, um, you know, they're a little nervous about things and, and I just feel like you took a big leap here. So why don't you start and just kind of tell us a little bit about the event and why you decided to get involved? Great. I'd love to. The, the event is called the Vaquero Heritage Trainers Challenge. Everyone knows about the plight of the, the BLM um, Mustangs that you can adopt a Mustang from a BLM facility, but in addition to the BLM horses, the 45,000 horses that they have in holding pens, there's also a number of different uh, privately managed herd of feral and wild horses. And that's the case here in Tehachapi, California. It's about an hour's drive from, from Bakersfield where I live. And there's a, a herd there that's been living there for, they think, between 80 and 100 years. Just to give you a little bit of basic background, there was a um, California was a big cattle country in the uh, uh, turn of the century. In the early 1900s, there was a cattle company called the Tehachapi Cattle Company, and one of the the owners of that uh, 
Roland Hill was the largest breeder of Morgan horses in the United States in the early 1900s. And he bred and raised Morgan horses to work cattle on his farm and on his ranch, rather. And I knew you'd catch me on that farm ranch thing. <laughs> <laughs> on his ranch. It's like calling a ship a boat. But uh, somehow these horses got out and they were left on their own devices. And they're they're uh, they're. They've got a lot of Morgan bloodlines in them. We don't know exactly which lines, but they one did pass away and they did an autopsy, found out it only had five vertebrae, which Morgans and Arabs do. And then the herd is entirely black. The The herd that produced the horses that, that in the event that I did were from the Oak Creek region of Tehachapi, and there's about 100 head of horses there, and every horse is solid black. I covered the event last year for my podcast, and essentially it's a three-day event, um, very much to extreme Mustang makeover. There's a couple of little twists. They gave us our horses on June 14th, and then we had until October 9th, 9th to train them and do whatever we were going to be able to do with them. The event was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and so Friday morning, they give us another brand new horse off the herd and they give us an hour session for the next three days to train that horse. The competition is is scored in two parts, what we've been able to do with the horse we've had for 120 days and then also what we were able to accomplish with the horse that we had for an hour a day for three days. When I covered the event last year, they used uh, very young horses as the new colts and uh, this year they used two, two and three year olds. When I saw the event last year, I noticed how calm a demeanor these horses had, how trainable they seemed to be. And a lot of the trainers were were very much amateur trainers. And when the time came up uh, earlier this year that, that the event was they were preparing for, it didn't seem like they had enough trainers. And I had talked to the organizers and interviewed them last year, and and as a parting comment, Jeremy Dunn, one of the organizers, says, well, you ought to consider training a horse next year. So when it didn't look like the event might go off because they only had four trainers and they needed a minimum of six, I applied and uh, thought I could could handle a cult. They, they looked very malleable and they looked very calm. And I thought I could live through the experience, which was my number one goal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I applied and I got accepted. And then I I. I got a horse, and he turned out to be a nine-year-old gelding. Uh, he was gelded in uh, at the age of six or seven, and so I had a, a few challenges with him. But it was a it was an exciting experience. Wow! How did you feel when you when you sent in your application? I mean, were you excited? Were you nervous? Like, how, what was that like for you? Yeah, you know, but when I sent in my application, I was very confident. I knew that um, I knew that I could handle the horse. I knew that I could, I thought I could train the horse. I was very, I had a pretty high confidence level that I would be able to get the horse. There was the mechanics of, we have a half an acre, so I was going to have to move some pens around. I was going to have to get a round pen, which was only going to be 30 feet. I was going to have to get extra hay. And there was all those things. Now, don't get me wrong. I knew that there was, there's a, that there is a lot that I don't know about horsemanship. And part of my motivation in doing this was to find out exactly how much I didn't know. And and much to my surprise, 
there was a whole heck of a lot more that I didn't know than I thought I did know. So. <laughs> I think that's always the way it kind of goes. Um, now, you mentioned something, and, and I, I meant to ask you about it. You said that there are a, there are several um, wild horse herds on private land or, around the country. So, so it's not just this one. So it's not yes, and I've um, I talked to uh, Mary Kitzmiller, who's a horse trainer in Texas. Yeah, I told her that I was going to be doing this. We we had interviewed for the show again. I uh, used the show my contacts for the show to to get a lot of advice from different people. But I had talked to her uh, between the time I'd sent my application in and the time I got my horse, and she gave me some really good advice. But then told me that there was a herd that she had that she knew about in Texas that was very similar to the Oak Creek uh, horse herd, that these were feral horses and privately managed so that they weren't, they were on, pro, they were on, I don't know what kind of property. These horses are on private property. So that's how they're managed. That's really interesting. I, uh, you know, you don't ever think about that because the BLM horses get all the coverage, but that's really neat to know that there's other ones out there. And, and obviously, you know, you got a nine-year-old horse to start, so they don't have a lot of uh, interaction with humans probably in, in, up until, you know, the time that you, you guys got them. He did not. He had, um, he had been gelded, like I said, in uh, 2013. And that's essentially they run him through a chute, anesthetize him. They gave him a, a te- tetanus vaccine, and then um, then they turn him back out on the herd because there's nothing else they can do with them. Now they do with our drought in California. They did uh, supplement some of their their feed with alfalfa, so they they did get used to coming in for feed. Mm. And did you have to halter break your horse too? <laughs> to go back a little bit, I was very confident when I put my application in, and very quickly that confidence got eroded away because. <laughs> We go up, and this was this was still when confidence was high. But we drove back this to this canyon. This is about five miles on a dirt road, and and one of the other uh, trainers had been there last year. He says you're going to love this part of the event. We were driving around, and it's this, this windy road in the 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 hills of Tehachapi, and we come around the corner, and we see uh, seven black horses running along. A, a lower ridge, just going the same direction that the road is going, but excuse me, but they're about a half a mile away, and they're just running full blast, and they're jumping logs, and they're just going like crazy, and we're in awe to see these horses out running in the wild. And another quarter of a mile down the road, we make another turn, and the the reason these horses were running, they were running back to the herd. So we come around this corner over a rise and opens up into a meadow with a hundred black horses. Wow. It was pretty awesome. And then we, and and then we had 30 minutes to pick out our horses. We draw, we drew, drew numbers. They had captured about 30 horses in a holding pen and we got to, we couldn't go into the pen. We had to pick our horses from the outside. I drew number eight and I wanted a gelding and there was one gelding left. And, uh, it turned out to be the horse that I had for the next four months. They, run them through a chute into the back of our trailer. They closed the door. Once that horse got into the trailer, he was mine. So he wasn't, he, I didn't take ownership of the horse until he got in the trailer. Once he got in the trailer, 
damage to the trailer or damage to the horse was going to be my responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so that was a little bit scary, but <laughs> we got him home. And uh, how, was, how did your trailer look when you got home? It was good. The, the guy was extremely calm. Uh, we had to go out the five miles of the dirt road. It was pretty windy. And, uh, and when we got him home, opened up the back door of the trailer into our 25 by 25 pen that I had set up for him. He walked out, looked around and uh, says, where's dinner? So I fed him. <laughs> so he didn't have any trouble acclimating. He did not, no. And uh, what did you end up naming him? So because it was the very first time I'd ever done that. Good question, by the way. <laughs> Because it was the very first time that I had ever done this, Alyssa, and because the the uh, horses were just covered with with uh, all kinds of bite marks and scratches from living out in the wild, uh, since I was starting from scratch and he was covered with scratches, I decided I was going to call him Scratch. Mm. And then to to answer your question, it took me about uh, it took me about four or five days to get a, a halter on him. So I got a, I got a halter on him. And then, uh, then I had to worry about training, how to teach him how to lead. And that took probably another week. Well, I, I mean, it's a lot harder to break a horse to lead when they're nine years old than it is when they're a baby. <laughs> so have you done that? Have you started a horse? Uh, I have never halter broke an adult horse. I mean, I've messed with colts and stuff, but uh, never, never like, you know, I mean, I've had, I've definitely had some colts that older three-year-olds and stuff that we were riding that didn't lead very well, but they were somewhat halter <laughs> broke, you know? <laughs> But no, I've never had to halter break one that that old that's been that, you know, little handled. It it's a it was a challenge because I didn't have uh, I'm a kind of an independent guy and I wanted to do everything on my own and I didn't have a whole lot to go on other than I knew that if I kept trying to handle him that he would have to give in sooner or later. So mm -hmm. I just kind of outweighed him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's always a, a good method, you know, just outlast him. That's not, that's all I had going for me. So you had him for, what, four months? Four months. Leaning, leaning up to the competition. Obviously, you ha had to work with him a lot every day and teach him, you know, everything from the very beginning. Uh, were there any, like, particular moments that kind of stand out to you that maybe were the most memorable there, you know, the first time that that I got on him was a very memorable time. Uh, it and in the four months, he never he never threw me off of him. He never uh, he never really bucked out of animosity. He did get a little frustrated with me from time to time, but and he did buck from fear. But he did not. He didn't really. He wasn't trying to get me off. That I could tell, mm -hmm. and he never and he never did. The, um, I don't know if you just heard that uh, plane fly over. I'm, I'm recording this from our house. We, we live under the flight path of an airport. And it's a municipal airport, and there's a lot of experimental planes there. And I had been working with Scratch for about, oh, almost a month when it was time to, uh, I'd, I'd gotten the saddle on him. I'd gotten him nice and relaxed. I'd I was bending him. I was flexing him. I had desensitized him. I, I was basically using the down under horsemanship method, and it was time to to get on him. So we 
we had practiced this. I'd got my mare, my quarter horse mare, Jessie, and I pretended she was a wild horse. And we were going to use the two people in the round pen method that Clinton recommends, where one person just stays in the saddle and the other person moves the horse's feet around. So I enlisted the help of my wife, Renee, to have the stick in the flag, and she was going to move the horse around. And like I said, we practiced with my quarter horse, and my quarter horse did amazingly well. So she's obviously broken, broke, but um, but it got time to to write, to get on scratch. And I'm I'm doing all this pre-flight stuff, checking him, flexing him, doing all this stuff. And I've got one foot in the stirrup, and I'm going up and down and patting him on the other side, doing all the stuff you're supposed to do, going through this whole 15-minute process that I that I've done probably a dozen times before, just never threw my leg over. Now it's time to throw my leg over. And I do. And I just get my rear end settled in the saddle when one of those planes fly over. <laughs> now there's about there's about 10 planes that fly over on an average day that that land, private planes. And of those 10, about one in 40 will backfire when they're landing because they're they're throttling back. Very few of them backfired directly overhead. <laughs> this time, I was lucky because that's exactly what happened. I mean, as soon as my butt hit that saddle, that plane backfired and uh, scratched, said, I don't know what the heck is going on, but I've got you on my back and I've got a loud noise popping over my head. And he didn't like that at all. So thankfully, I was in a 30-foot round pen. He gave a couple of uh, crow hops and, and uh, was really just kind of going berserk and so it was he he kind of banged up against one of the round pens and I just stepped off on one of the panels and and uh, as soon as I got off of him he calmed down that was probably the most memorable part is other than the competition was that very first ride yeah and then then he kind of had to regroup and start again <laughs> I had to yes and I wanted to you know that wasn't it's from what I understand about starting horses, you really don't want to have too many bad experiences because those are the ones that they tend to remember. So I had to go kind of go backwards, and uh, I had to do that a lot in the training. When I made a mistake as far as doing something, I would have to go back to the beginning and then try and start over again. Next time I had a, um, a more experienced friend help me to do the first ride, and it went off without a hitch, and that was we probably waited three more weeks before I got on him again. Cause oh, really? there was all, there was also, you know, there was, there was the work that I had to do, but then there was also a confidence issue too, because I thought, you know, gosh, I don't, don't want him bucking around. It was, you know, even though he didn't toss me off, I, you know, wasn't, it was, it wasn't a, an easy get. I mean, it didn't hurt me, but it, it was a pretty scary few seconds that he was bouncing me around. Yeah. Well, before we get to the competition part of it, what was your goal through the through this whole process and leading up to, you know, the competition? What did you want to get out of it? One, I wanted to be able to say that I started a horse. I'd always wanted to do that. I'm in my sixth decade. I'm 61. I'm not going to have too many opportunities to do it anymore. So I thought, First, I thought the time had passed and I wasn't going to be able to do it at all. Then this opportunity came up and I said, you know what, I'm just going to do it while I can. I'm going to be as safe as I possibly can. And then I want to find out how much of my horsemanship skills uh, are really valid. You know, do I, am I fooling myself? Do I know about horses? Do, uh, 
You know, do I think I'm just kind of a weekend cowboy or can I really train this horse who has no real knowledge? Can I take and give him the skills that he needs to have to become a good horse? And that was my main goal was to find out one, if I could do it. And, uh, I've never been one to, to shy away from a challenge. The, the, the biggest thing in this event was the time commitment. Would I be able to get the job done in four months? Yeah, that's that's a pretty tight time frame, especially when it's your first horse that you've ever started. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Because there's a lot of learning that goes along the way, you know. You're... Oh, I panicked many times. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how did you feel? Um, going into the competition, did you feel prepared? Did you feel ready? I didn't. Uh, I, I felt pretty nervous. And one of the things that I'd committed to, even though I was using the Clinton Anderson method for the for the first five or six weeks, the event was called the Vaquero Heritage Trainers Challenge. And the Vaqueros were the early, you know, the, the early cow hands and and horsemen. And they used a Bozell and Hackamore setup. And I just said, you know, I could probably train him and, and, and do it in a snaffle, but I really want to commit to this Bozell and Hackamore setup and with the Makati reins and try and see if I could do it with that. Yeah, because let's just make it a little bit more challenging. Yeah, you know, and I think... <laughs> <laughs> see, that, and this is where I really kind of... I kind of would come off the rails. I didn't have enough knowledge to know that that was a silly thing to try to do. You know, people would say, uh, are you, uh, are you going to put them in a snaffle? And I said, no, I'm going to kind of keep them in the hackamore. Not, no one said, are you nuts? Which is what they should have said. They should have <laughs> said, no, you should put them in the snaffle. I just thought, you know, Hey, I'm kind of following the path of the Vaquero thing. And I didn't really have a good stop on him. I did not. I mean, I had a good stop when he wanted to stop. I could lope him around for five minutes. And when I sat down, he would he would slide to a stop almost. He, and uh, he'd get his feet under him and it was really good. But if he was frightened or afraid and I wanted to stop him, uh, asking him to stop with my seat, he would just ignore it. And he would just kind of blow through the, the hackamore, I couldn't bend him around. I couldn't do anything. So when I, when it got time to go to the competition, I knew that I did not have this one essential ingredient. I didn't have a stop. And uh, I was pretty worried about that. So how did it end up going? It, uh, it went out, it went pretty well. He, uh, he was more nervous. Scratch was more nervous around the crowds than I had anticipated. Uh, I'd never really got him into a large group of people like that, and uh, there was sp- loudspeakers overhead. We did it. We did first of all, we did the uh, obstacle course from the ground, and that was probably our best performance of of the event. He uh, he walked over a bridge. He trotted alongside me. He got in a trailer very well. Uh, he, he, we maneuvered around the cones and the cowboy curtain and all that. The riding part of the uh, of the competition was pretty tough because I had, I had a right lead, but I couldn't get a left lead. He he was really fighting me on that left lead. Again, it was part of the problem was the, the Bozell setup that I was using. And when I would try to switch him around, he would just fight and and run through my hand. So I had to do a little bit of that. uh, Instead of using a, a left lead, I would just trot him through that part of the competition. And he did pretty well there too. We, we made our way through the gate. 
we went over the bridge again. We went through the, the different things. We dragged a, uh, a, a log and we did a lot of good things he did. He has a great mounting block exercise. We did that very well. And then in the freestyle, I had this, uh, I had this notion that I was going to set up Paul Revere's ride. So I got myself a tri-corner hat and a Paul Revere-like jacket, and I'd handed out, my, my support crew had handed out American flags and those little champagne poppers that they do at parties to yeah. the crowd. And then I had a Paul Revere song that was playing, and uh, there was going to be three parts to my freestyle. So the first part was Paul Revere, a road by the crowd, and I said, fire! And they all popped their poppers, and uh, Scratch did really well. He he sped up, but he didn't uh, he didn't do anything more than that. And we were on the right lead, so uh, a right lead, so that was good <laughs> because he didn't have the left lead. And uh, and, th- and that was the first three minutes of the the routine. And then I switched into Western garb and did. Uh, I tried to do a couple of side passes and backing up and uh, some of some other things that were just kind of a, a total mess. He did do a, a great mounting block exercise, and that was pretty good. And in the third segment of our freestyle was I took his his bridle off. I took the hackamore off, um, and then I rode him around. He did fairly well. Uh, he preferred to, to kind of go where he wanted to go, but he kind of let me steer him every once in a while. And then I put a blindfold on and got him to canter a few steps and then got him to stop. And then, uh, I pretty much had enough that, that was, (laughs) (laughs) that all went fairly well. And and we ended up coming in fourth out of, uh, out of the six trainers that competed and uh, the three trainers that were ahead of me all make a living, uh, training horses. So I was pretty proud of, uh, of what I was able to accomplish with it. Well, what was that like for you competing against those trainers that, you know, do it for a living and obviously it wasn't their first horse that they'd ever started? I mean, did you ever have have a feeling of like, uh, what am I doing here? I, I had it quite often. And uh, those guys, the the people that that were the professional trainers did such a far better job with their horses. They had their horses uh, in much more of a ready state than I did. Uh, And I'm not discounting what I was able to do with them by any means, but these guys had uh, lead changes. They had their horses laying down. They were standing on their horses. Of course, I don't know how practical that is, but (laughs) they showed that their horses, they had control of their horses. Their horses were confident. Uh, They were they were bold and courageous. They did a lot of things extremely well. And one of the best things about the uh, being taking part in the competition was I got to watch how these guys worked and I got to pick their brains in between sessions and ask them questions. And they're all very open and helpful with, with how they handled it too. So it was a great experience. That's awesome. I mean, honestly, you, you, you accomplished a huge goal for yourself and you I mean, I tell people all the time that you can't compare yourself to others and worry about what others think and all that stuff. You know, you have to really set your own goals and and set out to accomplish what's important to you. And and you absolutely did that. So, you know, uh, you should be proud. Thanks. And one of the, the best things about the whole event is that, you know, it's really nice to get um, – to get praise and to get to, you know, have people go, Hey, that's a really good job. Uh, 
But one of the nicest things that happened was the, uh, the, the man who was announcing, doing all the announcing for the event, is the ranch manager of a 40,000-acre uh, cattle ranch real, uh, quite close to Tachapi. And this man was so kind and gentle. He would see me struggling with something, and he he came over and talked to me during one of the breaks. And he and he said, you know, you're doing a really good job, which I'd been getting a lot of, and I and I really appreciated the the, the words. But actions do speak louder than words. And he says, I want to bid on your horse. And I said, because at, at the end of the event, there is an auction and a trainer can decide to sell his horse or not. And I had made the decision to sell Scratch before I even entered the competition because our property is only zoned for two horses and we have two horses. And I just couldn't figure out a way to keep him. And he said, I'm going to bid on your horse. And I said, are you sure? Because, you know, he's going to do, you haven't seen the freestyle yet. And I said, I think he's going to do something crazy in the freestyle. And <laughs> <laughs> and he says that he says that's okay. He says we can fix it. He says, but I want you to know that if I buy your horse, that you have to come along and continue training him. I said, you know, there's a lot of good trainers here. He says, I know there's a lot of good trainers here, but he says I've watched you and and I want you to continue training this horse. So that was it. That was where a guy actually, you know, he he went one step beyond of just you know, pat me on the back and saying, good job. He said, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to, I have confidence in you. And that really gave me um, probably the the best feeling of the, of the event. That's when I knew that I had, um, that I had done something that was worthy of accomplishment because here was a guy who was willing to put his money where his mouth was. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, gosh, what a, what a huge compliment. It, it was. And, and then he said, you have to come up on the ranch and ride scratch around. And, and, and for a, you know, kind of a city slicker like me to, to be able to do that, that's, you know, that's, that's a pretty big deal right there. I mean, I would have loved to have gotten an invitation to his ranch to ride up there, whether it was to train his horse or not. So. Right, right. And he did end up buying your horse. He did. Yes, he did. And, uh, um, he, and then, he was true to his word. He said, I want you to uh, continue training him, take him home, get him in a, put him in a snaffle, please. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that, and then, and this is how you learn from stuff like this though, is that when you're, when, when you don't know what you don't know, which were, there were many times during the last four months where I was doing stuff that I didn't even know that I, that I didn't know. Sometimes that can help you, but also it can, can hurt you. But as, when you look back on it, you, if you're if you're paying attention, you'll learn is that uh, Scratch has made the transition to the snaffle bit in in the last two and a half weeks or so that that we've been working together. And he's it's really transforming him as a horse. He's becoming a lot more confident. He's becoming a lot more trusting. I have I have the ability to ride him now, knowing that I can stop him again and and calm him down. And we're able to to kind of now work through some of the issues that that we didn't weren't able to work through earlier. And it's, it's a really great feeling to be able to, to see the transformation that he's making now after long after the event's over too. That's awesome. So 
what would you say is the biggest thing that you got out of this whole experience? I mean, what, what are you looking back on it and saying, wow, that was so worth it because I learned this or because, you know, I've gained this from, from, you know, just stepping up and being brave and doing it. There's, there's a lot of horsemanship knowledge that I'm, that I that I learned over the four months and it, that would be really hard to to put into which was the most valuable lesson but the thing that I'm most proud of is that I did not let age stop me is that I wanted to do something I decided I was going to do it and I decided that I had to figure out a way to do it safely and and I and I did I, I accomplished that that goal. And I could have said, you know, gosh, you're too old for this stuff. You should just, uh, you know, take up something like photography or, or something that's not going to hurt yourself because a, a horse can't hurt you. But, but I want, I said, you know, I'm not getting any younger. I'm going to do it now. And I set a goal and I accomplished it. And that's, to me, that's the, to me, that's the most thing that I'm proud of. Yeah. That's, that's pretty awesome. So I have to ask you what, like, if if you were going to give advice to somebody who is like wanting to do something, whether it's train a wild horse or, you know, whatever the case may be, and they're kind of apprehensive about it and maybe a little nervous or scared or don't have the confidence, but they really want to do it. I mean, what advice would you give them to sort of just you know, step up. I, you know, it's, and it, that's exactly, that's a pretty good way you put that question, Alyssa, too, is that step up, is that you take it a step at a time. Now, I didn't have, I, I had some basic knowledge with horsemanship. I'd been studying horsemanship and doing the podcast, learning from some of the greatest trainers in the, in the country as, you know, via conversation, but I was still being exposed to a lot of good horsemanship. So I didn't start from a knowledge base of zero, but I did, you know, I kind of took it each step at a time. I knew what I had to do and I, and I would take one step. And when I got a lack of confidence or I got uh, scared or I got insecure, I took a break, stopped, thought about what I was doing, got myself back on track and moved forward again. I took a, I took a step and I may not have been the biggest step, but I took a little step and then slowly I got, I got back towards my goal. And, and I, one of the things there were during that four months, there were a lot of crises of confidence that I experienced. Mm -hmm. And, and there were a lot of trainers that I would call and I would ask for help. And almost all of them were, were very open to to letting me bring scratch to their property, come in for a lesson, give me a piece of advice. I got something from. It seemed like every time that I needed something, I got something. And there was a a time uh, where I was really kind of struggling with with how things were going. I, I wasn't being able to ride him as much as I wanted to, where I wanted to, in the manner I wanted to. And I was reading, uh, I was listening to a book on tape, and it was uh, Orville and Wilbur Wright by uh, David McCullough. And he was talking about how these guys, everybody else was trying to fly a plane by learning how to fly, a, by 
building a plane, flying it, and crashing it. And Orville and Wilbur learned how to fly a plane from the ground first. And they had many setbacks, and they would get discouraged, and they had somebody to uh, to kind of boost them up. They had each other. You know, if Orville was down, Wilbur would pick him up. And they learned how to fly from the ground long before they ever got in a plane, which is how they were able to set so many flight records when they first when they first started flying. It wasn't everything advanced so quickly for them. And I had I had the support of my wife. Every time I would get down she would come to me and she'd say, listen, you know, I know you're not you're sure how this is going to happen, but I have one thing that I know for sure is that you're going to get the job done. Now might not be in time for the competition, but I know you're going to figure it out. So each each time I, I ran into some sort of problem, there was always something there. And I kind of knew that going in. I said, you know, I know that if I just keep moving step by step closer to my goal, that's that the whatever happens, whatever universe is out there, it's going to help me get there as long as I keep moving forward. It's only when I stand still that I tend to feel totally lost. So that's what I did. I love that. That's great advice. And I love the story. I mean, it just, it fits perfectly for what you're doing. And I'm, I'm really proud of you, John. Seriously. I think it's awesome that you, you stepped outside your comfort zone and you you took on such a huge undertaking and, you know, you, you did it, you finished the race and, um, that's awesome. Coming from somebody who has had as much experience with horses as you have and, and have had the luxury of being around horses all your life. That really means a lot to me too. Oh, I'm glad. And I think with that, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and, and, and wrap up here. But before we do, um, just, let everybody know who maybe didn't hear our first interview together where they can find out more about your podcast and, and uh, find out more about you online. Yeah, you can find out about the Woe podcast. It's whoapodcast.com. That's my website. Uh, I did chronicle the, a lot of the adventures with, that I had with Scratch over the four months, and I did, uh, I did a series of about a dozen different videos from the from the very first time he got loaded into the trailer to the uh, to the last of the competition and those are on my YouTube channel which is my name without any spaces and that's John last name is Herrer H A R R E R on YouTube and uh, you can you can see how scratch did through the competition and and really about from where he came from too because that when they loaded them up in the trailer, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty awesome little site too. Yeah. I, I'm going to have to check that out because this ranch sounds pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to chat with me today, John. It, it was great to catch up and great to hear your story and, and I appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks for having me, Alyssa. It's always great fun talking to you. Thanks to Alyssa Barnes and the folks over at the Earn Your Spurs podcast for helping to produce this show. Once again, I encourage you to check out earnyourspurs.com. Alyssa has some exciting things in store to help you unleash your inner cowboy. You can also find Earn Your Spurs on Facebook. And if you want to see the video series I recorded with Scratch, visit my YouTube channel. Just do a search for John Hare, J-O-H-N-H-A-R-R-E-R, all one word, no spaces, and you'll see a playlist called V as in Victory HTC. 
That'll do it for this episode. I'm hoping to return to a more normal and regular schedule with the show. My vision of the Wall Podcast has never been to remain static. I've looked for interesting guests and topic I thought you might be interested in learning more about. Now that the audience has grown, I'd like to hear more from you. I would like you to tell me about your horse. How often do you ride? Do you have training tips? What's the most important concept about your horsemanship? And what would you like to hear about on the Woe Podcast? Do you like the book reviews? Do you want more trainers talking about horsemanship? Do you enjoy the experience pieces talking about sorting or roping or working equitation? There are a couple of ways to give feedback. You can, of course, email me at john at woepodcast.com or you can call and leave a voicemail on our special dedicated line. The number is 661-368-5530. Of course, you can always find these addresses on woepodcast.com. And don't worry about it if you mess it up. I am a great editor and I'll make you sound wonderful. And I hope you'll take the time to share your ideas. And we're working on a new type of podcast, a storytelling podcast. Stories about the West, stories about horses and cowboys, or cowboys and horses. And I'm looking for help. If you ever wanted to try working on a podcast, here's your chance. We'll talk about story ideas, production, interviewing, web posting, and all kinds of stuff. We have a couple of volunteers already, and we could use a couple more. You'll get the same pay as me. Zilch. (laughs) But the satisfaction of putting together an entertaining and informative show. If you want to help, you know how to contact me. Again, it's john at woepodcast.com. By the way, I occasionally tweet under the handle at woepodcast, and you can find me on Pinterest and Instagram too. And if you haven't liked that Facebook page, well, let's get after it. Come on, you need a little more homework? Stop by iTunes and post a review. That's the kind of stuff you guys do to help the show grow, and I appreciate every little bit of it. You can find out more about this whole mess at woepodcast.com. We have more than 100 audio episodes, and we have links to our YouTube channel with over 70 videos. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere else podcasts are distributed. Guess what? They're all free. And when you stop by the website, make sure you join our mailing list. Thanks for listening and sharing this podcast. Until next time, for Renee, this is John Hare encouraging you to go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody.